you would turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians, this will be the last time that I'll be asking you to do this as we conclude our series in this book. Our text this morning is the very last verse of this letter. Chapter 13, verse 14. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. O Lord, we ask this morning that you would open your word up to us. That as we study this text, we would know more of who you are. We would know more of the blessings that you have given to us and that you have promised to us. And that as your people, we would be united with one voice to give you the praise and honor that you deserve. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, we have spent the last year together in 2 Corinthians. I don't know if it seems like it's been that long, but back last April was when we started in this book. There have been a few things that have happened in the last year that might have distracted you from keeping track of our text. As we come up now this week on the anniversary of 15 days to slow the spread, we come now to the conclusion of Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth. I have to admit that this is not the most commonly preached through book in the New Testament. There are not many opportunities to find ministers who have preached entirely through this book. But I still, all the same, trust that it has been beneficial to you, that the Lord has used this book in your lives and in your understanding of, the, of God himself. It is Paul's perhaps most personal and emotional letter. But at the same time, there is a great deal of important theology in this book. In this book, Paul defends the gospel of grace. And perhaps the greatest short summary of what Jesus did at the cross is found in this book, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, when Paul tells us that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Now Paul closes with a brief but powerful summary of who God is and the blessings that we receive from him. This is a very well-known verse. We hear it almost every Sunday at the conclusion of our worship. But I think it is still worth studying and to find out what the Lord would tell us in this text. So what I would like to do is approach this text with two questions in mind. 
The first question that I want us to ask is, what is this? What is this verse? What is it doing here at the end of this letter? It is set off by itself. If you have a Bible that shows paragraph markings, you will see that verse 14 is a paragraph all to itself. And this is commonly known, this verse, as a benediction. That's why it's used at the conclusion of worship services. So, what then is a benediction? Well, the word benediction itself comes from two Latin words that mean to speak well or to speak a blessing. We see examples of this throughout the Bible, primarily at the end of various New Testament letters. For example, in Romans chapter 15, we read, May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. In the end of 2 Thessalonians in chapter 3, we read, Now may the, God, the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the conclusion of that letter, we read, The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. You see the pattern here. It is a pattern of blessing. Blessings of peace. Blessings of the Lord being with us. Perhaps the most famous benediction is found in the book of Numbers, number 6. It's called the Aaronic Blessing after Aaron the priest. The Lord bless you and keep you, we read. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. <clears throat> this is the famous benediction that closes the worship service often. These benedictions are typically used at the conclusion of worship. And that is not just to tell us that worship is over and it's time to go to lunch. No, they are a summary statement of blessing to God's people. A benediction is something that we receive. It differs, for example, from an ascription, which is a technical term for a verse that ascribes glory and power to God. For example, in Jude, verse 25. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Do you notice the difference? That verse in Jude is ascribing, hence ascription, glory and power and wisdom to God. Whereas a benediction is a blessing that God pours out on us. And a benediction is actually quite formal. It's the very first act that a man undertakes when he has been newly ordained after the ordination service and after the sermon has been preached and the charges have been given to the congregation and to the man, the man is escorted to the pulpit and he gives the benediction, a sign that he is now a minister of the gospel. He is one whose life is to be spent bringing the blessings of God to his people. But why do we use benedictions? It's not, as we said, <coughs> just to... Give us a clue that the end of the service is near. No, worship itself is a dialogue between God and man. 
Part of that dialogue is our offering up of praise to the Lord. But we close that dialogue on a note of blessing from God. And this reminds us that all of our spiritual abilities come from God's grace. We are who we are because of what God has done. We would not be here this morning to worship the risen Savior, except that God had done a work in our hearts. He had taken our hearts of stone and given us hearts of flesh. By His Spirit, He indwells us. And so because of what God has done, we have spiritual ability. We can read the Bible with profit. We can hear from the Lord in His Word. We can offer up our praise and our prayers. Do you pay attention during the benediction? Do you see it as a blessing that God is bringing to you? Does it remind you of the relationship you have with God? Because that's what it serves. This benediction is also a sign of God's relationship with his people. Paul closes this benediction with, May the Lord be with you all. The Lord Jesus Christ and God and the Holy Spirit, may they be with you all. And so the relationship that we have with God is often described in the scripture by means of a covenant. God makes a covenant with his people. When God created Adam and Eve, he entered into a covenant with Adam. Because Adam was different than all of creation. Adam was made in God's image. Adam was made to be in relationship with God. And so God entered into a covenant with him, a covenant of works, and he laid before him everything that was in the garden. And he said, all of this is yours, except do not eat of the fruit of this one tree. It was God's way of testing Adam's commitment to the relationship. Would he heed God's word? Would he obey God? And of course, you know from the sad story in Genesis 3, that Adam disobeyed God, and he ate of the forbidden tree, and he was cast out of the garden. But even after he had been cast out of the garden, even after he had sinned, even after he had violated God's law, God still came to him. He made a new covenant, a covenant of grace, because God still desired to have the relationship with Adam. He wanted it to be restored. And at that time, God set about restoring himself to sinners. He ultimately did it in the fulfillment of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. But throughout the Bible, we see God renewing and repeating this covenant of grace about this relationship that he desired with his people. He made a covenant with Abraham and with Moses, with David. And then ultimately, the greatest expression of the covenant is found in the new covenant in the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And a fundamental part of the covenant is the promised blessings that God brings to us. For example, God promises to make Abraham a great nation and to bless all of the nations through him. God promised to David that he would have an eternal kingdom that would have no end. But the greatest blessing that God brings to us in his covenant is himself. 
the greatest blessing that we can experience is God. And so in Genesis chapter 17, God promises to be a God to you and your offspring after you. And then again in Jeremiah 31, he promises, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And in Hebrews chapter 13, he promises never to leave nor forsake us. The greatest blessing that we could ever receive is God himself. And that is what we see here at the end of this letter. All of the gospel, all of the ministry that Paul has been talking about is wrapped up in this. The gospel is not the end that we seek. Even forgiveness is not the end that we seek. Grace is not the end that we seek. The gospel brings us to the Lord. The Lord is the end that we seek. The gospel makes us right with God. It reestablishes our relationship with God. And that's where Paul ends this letter, with our relationship with God himself. That's why he closes this benediction with the words, Be with you all. The idea is that we understand and see that God is in relationship with us. Your great hope, is to know and be known by God. Your great hope is to have an eternal relationship with Him. Everything else pales in comparison. Are you seeking that relationship today? Is that your priority in your life? Or are you instead bound up in material blessings and material matters? God calls you to himself. This statement is a word of blessing. It is a sign of God's covenant relationship with his children. But it is also a reminder of the Trinitarian nature of God. God has revealed himself in his word as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons. And that's exactly what Paul does here. He speaks of the grace of of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. But yet there is only one God. That's what Paul is telling us here. There are not three gods. There is but one God, but that one God exists in three persons. This is simple, straightforward language in which Paul affirms that God is triune. This is perhaps the clearest language in all of the New Testament in which Paul speaks of each of the persons of the Godhead. Jesus, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit are each spoken of in this verse. But yet there is no hierarchy. While there is distinction between the three persons, there is no hierarchy. There is no separation Interestingly enough, there is a different order of the persons than we are used to. We speak of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So much so that we speak of the Father being the first person, the Son being the second person, and the Spirit being the third. Why does Paul give us the second, the first, and the third? Well, we'll see that in just a moment. He has a purpose here when he does this. 
But this summary that he gives us affirms the truth throughout the Bible. Because the Bible presents the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as distinct persons. Think, for example, about the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is being baptized. And the Father speaks, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And the Spirit descends upon the Son. Each of the three persons is acting. They are distinct. If we think about the sending of the Spirit himself, Jesus says that I and the Father send the Spirit. They are the one sending, and the Spirit is the one sent. These are distinct persons. At the cross, we are told that Jesus performed the work of salvation, but that God the Father sent him to perform this work, and that it was by the eternal Spirit that Jesus was able to perform that work. And yet, even though the Bible presents the Father, Son, and Spirit as distinct persons, it is also very clear that there is only one God. If we look at the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, we see the call is to the church to go and to make disciples, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, there is the great statement of monotheism in the Old Testament, the Shema. Shema is just a Hebrew word that means listen or hear. And it comes from that classic text, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That was groundbreaking. Because the Israelites were the only people that believed in one true God. Every other people had a multiplicity of gods. They had gods for the forest, gods for the river, God for, gods for rain, gods for harvest, gods for everything under the sun. But Israel had been revealed, had had God revealed to them. When God visited Abraham, he told Abraham that he was the only true God. When God came to Moses and he revealed his name, I am the pre-existent one, the one who is dependent on no one else. Israel alone knew that God was one. And so understanding this truth that we see here in our text, that God is one, but is also three, he is triune, we can only know by revelation. It's not something that we can reason out. There is nothing that we can compare God to. There is no other being that exists in multiple persons. God is very much beyond our comprehension. And that shouldn't surprise us, because God is infinite. He is eternal. He is other than we are. And the only reason that we know anything about God is because he has spoken to us in his word. And so Paul is the best example to us of what to do. Paul grew up steeped in monotheism. As a matter of fact, when Paul was a young Pharisee. It was that monotheism that drove him to persecute Christians. 
Because in his mind, they were heretics. They were talking about a second God. They were acting as if Jesus was God. And everyone knows, Paul said, every good Jew knows there is only one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. But when Paul was introduced to the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, he realized that Jesus is God. That God is still one. But God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so when God revealed the Trinity to Paul, Paul believed it. And he taught it. And now here Paul is calling upon us today to confess it. That God is triune. We live in a world today that scoffs at the Bible. It cannot imagine a triune God. And so instead, it believes that Jesus was a mere man or even more a myth. It believes that the Holy Spirit is a force, not a person. The world believes that God is to be made in our image to serve us in the way in which we desire. But you, Christian, you are called to be counter-cultural. To believe what God says in His Word. To take Him at His Word. To let His truth enter into your being. And to work your life around His truth. Well, we've seen what a benediction is. Now we can explore what it means by asking a second question. What does it mean? Why is Paul sharing this benediction? And I think the answer is, he wants us to know about our relationship with God and to know who God is. But he also wants us to see what blessings God gives to us. And so this could be described as a summary of the blessings of the gospel. And so it is a most fitting way to end this letter. The first thing that Paul wishes for us is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is a familiar term to us. It is perhaps too familiar. We need to be amazed by grace. We need to see the wonder in grace. Grace means we do not get what we deserve. Grace is the opposite of reward or of justice. We might think about grace as unmerited or undeserved favor. God gives us favor that we do not deserve. But really, grace is demerited favor. We have demerited favor. Our sin has put us at enmity with God. We are the enemies of God. We not only do not deserve it, we have forfeited God's grace. But God gives his grace to us, and it is important for us to see that it is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul employs the full name of Christ for us to see this grace. Jesus is Lord. God himself. This is Paul's use of the Old Testament name of God. I am. Jesus is completely God. And yet he is also Jesus. He is the one who became man. 
He shares our nature so that we can receive His grace. And Paul also calls Him the Christ. That is His office. He is the mediator between God and man. Jesus is the one who brings grace to us. You cannot separate grace from Jesus. Grace is not a substance that is independent of Jesus. It's not like water or soil or even air. It doesn't exist apart from Jesus as a substance. In order to experience grace, you must be in a relationship with Jesus. And you cannot be in fellowship with Jesus and not experience His grace. It is by our relationship with Jesus that the grace of God comes to us. And the grace of Jesus has no end and no limit. Because of who Jesus is, His grace is infinite, eternal, and omnipotent. There is more grace for you than you could ever imagine. One pastor puts it this way. To say that I'm afraid I might use up the grace of God. That somehow God might give up on me, that there would be no grace for me, that His grace would not be sufficient for me, would be like one who goes to the seashore with a bucket and a spoon and wades out into the ocean. And as he starts scooping ocean water into the bucket with the spoon, declares, oh, I'm afraid I might empty the ocean. That the ocean will be devoid of water because of all I'm using here. So it is with the grace of God. We can never use up God's grace. It is infinite and eternal. The first thing that you need is grace. You can't come to the Father except by grace. You have no hope apart from grace. If there is anything that you need more of, it's grace. But know that Jesus has grace without measure or limit. Just as he told Paul, he tells you, my grace is sufficient for you. Then Paul turns to the love of God. When the New Testament authors refer to Christ and to God distinctly, the reference is to God the Father. For example, in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches, God has made Christ both Lord and Christ. And in Romans chapter 5, Paul writes, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so here now, Paul is speaking of the love of God the Father. And this is the progression. This is why we have the unusual order of the Trinity in this verse. The second person, then the first person, then the third. It is because the grace of God, of, excuse me, the grace of Christ brings us to God. Without it, we cannot experience God's love. But with the grace of Christ, nothing can keep us from his love. That's what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. 
And so Paul singles out this blessing from the Father. He could have mentioned any number of attributes of the Father. He could have mentioned other blessings that the Father gives to us. But he does this to show us where salvation and grace brings us. It brings us to the God who is love. God is not an abstraction. He is not a philosophical necessity like Aristotle's unmoved mover. He's not a logical deduction. He's not an ideal being. He is a person. Someone we can relate to. Someone who has love to shower upon us. And this reminds us that it was love that brought Jesus to the cross. We should not believe the lie that Jesus had to convince the Father to relent and forgive sinners. Oh no. We could be tempted to bring our experience of flawed fathers to God the Father. But that's not who he is. John 3.16 tells us that it was the Father's love that initiated redemption. It was because God is love that we have hope. Because of God's love that we have forgiveness. And that is a reality that we must live in. As we face all the hardships and tragedies of life, we must know that we are loved by God. The God who created all things loves me. He knows me. He sent his son to pay for my sins. He wiped away my guilt. Why? Love. Because of God's love. And this love will never let me go. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. Now that doesn't mean that life will be perfect or easy. But it does mean that whatever life brings to you, God's love remains with you. God has met the entire cost of your sin. There is nothing left to do. The love of God has no limits. Like His grace, it is beyond anything we can imagine. The Father has shown you His love in the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you rest in that love? Will you find hope and peace in that love. The final thing that Paul describes is fellowship. He says, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now notice what he does not say. He does not say, the Holy Spirit be with you all. And that's because he's writing to believers. And all believers have the Spirit of God. It is through the work of the Spirit that we are made new creations in Christ. If you know Christ by faith, then you are indwelt by the Spirit. But what Paul wants us to know is the fellowship of the Spirit. Now this could have two points of reference. It could be describing the fellowship within the body of Christ that is brought about by the Spirit. Or it could mean the fellowship 
that each believer has individually with the Spirit. Now, while the first fellowship within the body is important, it is also a result of the second fellowship with the Spirit Himself. And so I believe that is what Paul is referring to. The fellowship that we have with the Spirit Himself. And this word fellowship is a word that refers to having something in common. It's a word that you may be familiar with in the Greek. It is koinonia. There are often small groups called koinonia. And koinonia is used to refer to the oneness of God's people. It can be translated communion. That is, being one together. When you believe in Jesus and his work on the cross, you are no longer alone. From the very beginning, you have fellowship with the Spirit, God himself. This is Trinitarian salvation. Grace brings us to the love of God, and His love establishes fellowship. We are saved for a purpose, to be with God. Never doubt your purpose or your value. Life may be a struggle, but know that God the Spirit is always with you. He will never leave or forsake you. You are never alone to face the world. This is a word of blessing we need. Paul ends this memorable letter with a memorable word. He reminds us that the great triune God of the universe has not only taken notice of us, but that he has loved us and saved us in the work of Jesus Christ. God has blessed everyone who believes in Jesus. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you will know the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. This is our great hope. Will you join me today in praising the grace of Jesus Christ. Will you join me today in praising the love of God? Will you join me today in praising the fellowship of the Holy Spirit? Let's pray.